So I'm excited to get to jump back in here, and we will read the passage, we will pray, we will talk about the passage, and then we'll share in communion. Today is our communion Sunday, so um, just to give you a little bit of heads up on instruction for that, we are going to, um, just before the sermon ends, we're going to bring the table out up here, and we're going to have the elements there for you to come and um, receive. Um, just we're gonna just try this out today. I guess um, I haven't seen, I haven't done that this version of it yet since I've been here. But um, I'll, I'll give you further instruction there. But just be ready. Um, and again, as we're studying the word and as we're we're in prayer, um, I just encourage you to uh, check your hearts, look at look at where you stand with the Lord, and and know that He is ready to receive you day by day by the grace of Christ. Um, that our sins are forgiven in Him, and um, so it's it's a great day to celebrate communion together. Well, I hope you're in Philippians chapter 2, because I'm not there yet. can only do one thing at once. Turn pages or talk. It's too much to ask both, right? All right, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask in the words of Augustine that you would command what you will and yet provide what you command. You have called us to be holy because you are holy. And yet we cannot attain that apart from your provision of that holiness. And so as we come to the word today, we acknowledge that Christ has died on our behalf on the cross, has risen again, that just as he has risen and has ascended with you, we too now have newness of life in him, through faith in him, through trusting what he's done in our place, not on our own. And so I ask, Lord, that that the truth of what Christ has done for us would fill our hearts with joy today would transform us in deeper levels and that you would you would show yourself to be great. Help us now. Grant your spirit that we might learn and obey and be encouraged today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at these verses, 14 through 18, as a sort of second part to last week. Because truly, this is a whole section, verses 12 through 18. Paul is carrying on one idea here um, of about working out our salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who is at work within us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so we looked at those two verses last week separately by means of taking a sort of theological approach and understanding that um, while we have great misunderstandings about how could God be sovereign over all things and yet I'm still responsible to obey him, I'm responsible to repent of sin and to walk with him and all these kind of things. How can God truly be in, tr- in control? How can we, how can we truly say that salvation is of the Lord when it seems like I'm so active with it? And the truth is, is that 
Paul's showing us in these in this verses 12 and 13 that truly God is working in us and we are working out the thing that he's working in us. Now, if you totally understand how that works, then great job, because I don't really get it. It's, it's a hard theological concept to get, and that's all right, because it's God and he can do whatever he wants, right? And he doesn't, it's not as though God needs to explain himself. Okay, so it it ought to be an encouragement for us to know that the things that he calls us to do are meant to be working out what he's working in our lives. This mysterious work that we work with God is not in any way attaining our own salvation, but in the way that we exercise the gospel-worthy life, we are working out what he's working into us. New desires to please our Heavenly Father and the ability to do so. It's coming off of the, um, the beautiful Christ hymn of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 um, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, um, which is probably the high point of the whole book. That um, really points to the humility of Christ in obeying the Father to come to earth to live a perfect and sinless life, to live as a servant, and then die, even die on a cross, and he is now highly exalted. And so Paul is teaching the church about humility and that the, the risen Savior that we follow calls us to humility in much the way that he lived a humble life. And so in light of that, we move to verses 12 and 13 and consider that we need to work out our salvation because God is working our salvation into us. And now we look at verse 14 and we see a very, very practical thing. And it's kind of interesting. When you think about, okay, what does this really look like? Where, what's the starting point for this? Paul says, do everything, which if you just take those two words already, or do all things, that's a pretty, you know, works sounding thing, isn't it? Right? Do all things. Well, we need to remember that obedience in this, in these three words is not a, is not a thing that creates salvation in us, but it's a response and it's a fruit of salvation that God has worked in us. So do all things without what? Grumbling, right? Grumbling, or um, some of your translations may say complaining, arguing for um, the disputes here. So we're going to look at that. And isn't it interesting, though, that this is where Paul goes? Why does he immediately jump to grumbling and complaining, grumbling and disputes, grumbling and arguing? Well, it's a very biblical thing to be exhorted about. Grumbling should be easy for us to see if we just take a moment to examine our own lives. Even today, I'm bracing myself for about 4.30 when I get home after my long two-and-a-half-hour car ride, and I'm going to keep complaining about this until we move here, which will so hopefully be soon. But after my long car ride, and I'm finally ready to be home, finally ready to get out of the car, sit on the couch, and do nothing like I want to do, right? Like you want to after a long day's work. I need to see more nodding heads because, you know, let's confess this. This is what we want. It's Whether it's right or whether we do it, it doesn't matter. This is what we want. I need to be ready for opening that door and seeing my wonderful, beautiful wife who has endured a weekend with two children without me and be ready to say, what can I do? I'm so glad to be here. I'm, re- right? I'm not giving you this example of myself that I come home every- and I do that and I'm ready. I need to be prepared for it, right? Grumbling is not something that you can deal with after the fact. It's something you need to be prepared for, right? How many of you have to get up and go to work tomorrow morning? And you're starting, the hands went up so fast on that one, right? Yes, and you're already starting to grumble, right? 
You may, you may already have started when you woke up this morning and said, it's the end of the weekend already and I gotta go. We have this problem of grumbling and we may think that grumbling, because it's not always seen by everyone, is a more respectable sin, right? Certainly because we can, if somebody comes in and starts grumbling about going to work, we can relate to them, right? So it's not as though somebody comes in and said, I had a pretty rough week. I, I need to repent of, you know, robbing a bank and doing these, you know, horrendous, terrible sins. But we look at grumbling and we go, Paul, what's the big deal? Grumbling and disputing? Really? Grumbling and arguing are things that we see all over our culture. It's, it's normal. It's accepted. And if you work an eight-hour job in one day, it doesn't take long for you to join in, right? So I worked in an office setting for 10 years, and then I worked in a Christian school setting for five years. And I can say that when I transitioned to the Christian school setting, grumbling did not disappear just because everybody around me were Christians, right? (laughs) It's just not the case. It looked different, and praise God, it was different. There There was less of it, and there were conversations that we had where we said, hold on a second, we probably need to be more thankful in this situation, right? And, and certainly as the chaplain, that, that responsibility fell on me, which was a challenging thing so often in conversation to try to say, we need to stop this grumbling and complaining, right? But we find ourselves jumping right in with the, with the rest of the world in this because we accept it. This was a problem in the church that Paul has addressed for all the churches for all of time. Grumbling and disputing comes from, guess what? A lack of humility. Verses 5 through 11, regarding the humility of Christ. The Philippians ought to have been unified in considering others as more important than themselves. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, if you're really doing that, is there any room for grumbling? No, not if you're considering other people as more important than yourselves. If you're, if you're considering you're going to wake up and say, rather than take care of myself first, I'm going to make sure that everyone that I am, I have influence in their lives, whether I work with them or they're my family members or whatever, I'm going to count them as more significant than even myself. We ought to be able to embrace that and throw out grumbling, right? And disputing and arguments. Not so easy. Paul is not making a new rule for us here, such as no playing until your homework is done or make sure the dishes are done right after dinner, but rather he's calling us to work out Thank you for taking those lights down. I, that helps. I'm just going to say it right now. Thank you, Joe. That's it. I was about to sweat, and boy, yeah. Whew. All right, I'm already. Whew. All right, okay, cool. Distraction over, sorry. He's rather calling us to work out a character trait that God was working in them and is still working in us today. God is ready to work that in your life. If you're hearing this thing about grumbling and disputing and you're trying to ignore me because you know you're guilty of it, real rejoice and be at peace in the fact that God is ready to deal with this grumbling, the problem that you have. Okay? I'm not trying to look at anybody in specific, I promise. Just pointing back to me. Okay? He's working in us and through us to deal with things, even down to the level of things like grumbling. Okay? So, um, and, and this is a biblical thing. If you consider Israel and in, in the book of Exodus and Numbers, we are reminded later on here about holding on to the word of life. And that word of life that Paul's talking to the Philippians is referring to the Old Testament. Because remember, they don't have the, they have the book of Philippians. Yeah, that's cool, but they don't have the rest of the New Testament yet. Okay, this is the early church. And so when they're thinking about the word of God, they're mostly thinking about the Old Testament. So they would have been familiar with the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness. 
If you consider Exodus 16, right after the parting of the Red Sea, this amazing thing, God separated the sea in half and the Israelites walked across on dry land. And you know, I know what you're thinking. You're like, yes, I've heard the story a hundred times in Sunday school, but it is no less amazing today than it was thousands of years ago, right? Can you imagine being there? That would have been incredible. And then on top of that, Numbers 14, verses 1 through 11, is when um, Joshua and Caleb went out to scout the new land, scout Canaan, and so they came back and they gave a good report. There were other spies who gave a bad report. They said, oh, but there's the people are huge and the stuff, is, oh, it's so scary. And what happens in Numbers is that, uh, Numbers 14, sorry, that's a misprint over there. That's my fault. It should be Numbers 14. Um, before verse 11 here, uh, it says that the people raised up their voices in a loud cry and grumbled and complained that they ought to have rather been in Egypt than to go to this new land. And so look what the Lord says to Moses. How long will this people do what? What's that word? Despise who? Me. Now, if you ask the Israelites, are you despising God by grumbling this? No, I'm just despising my situation. Guess who's in charge of your situation? God, right? Thank you. God is in charge of your situation. And so God is seeing this grumbling as a direct offense against him. How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Boy, we can really easily pick up some stones and hurl them at the Israelites in the Old Testament, right? How atrocious, how hideous, how odious of them to trample over the good works that God had done in them. And yet... When we might ask them, how could they not be in rejoicing over what God's doing for them? We have to ask ourselves, how can we not be rejoicing in the times when we're not? You know, we have an even greater salvation to boast of in Christ than the separating of the Red Sea because Christ separated us from our sins. We have a greater hope than the land that, is, that flows with milk and honey because we have a hope of heaven, eternity with God in his presence forever. The word of God informs us that the minutia of our seemingly smallest sins are still despicable in the sight of God, even grumbling. Unchallenged by the humble mind of Christ, grumbling grows up into arguing, and unmediated by the humble mind of Christ, arguing destroys gospel unity. So do you want to remove grumbling from your life? I thought of this for a little bit because I was like, what's the practical, how do we walk away from this? The practical thing is this. If you want to remove grumbling from your life, start sharing the gospel with people. That's what I came up with. And it just seems so obvious. Because think about it. If you make sharing the gospel with other believers and non-believers a normal habit, a normal flow of your life, normal rhythm of life that you walk in, it's going to be really hard to complain and grumble if you're truly sharing the good news of Christ with other people. Amen? Yeah. Good. You should also consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, Paul says that the Corinthians, in going to court with each other over their disputing, he says that it is already a defeat for them. To have loss, lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. I like another translation. It's an older one. I think the New American Standard says that it is an utter failure already. And he gives this as the solution. If you can't work things out with another believer, wouldn't it be rather for you to just suffer the wrong done against you than to bring them to court? 
Wouldn't you rather be defrauded than to bring an issue between two believers before a world who doesn't know Christ and ask them to help you solve their problem? Paul is, I mean, the tone of Paul in 1 Corinthians is very different than the tone in Philippians, right? It's a very, very different tone. But in thinking about the extent of this to where we have grumblings, we have arguments and disputes with each other, and we think about like, wow, what do we, what do, we do about this? To think that, that we could go outside, look to something from the world to solve something that the gospel speaks directly to. In humility, the gospel says, if you can't work something out, it's better for you to absorb and suffer that wrong. That's not easy. I'm not saying it's easier. I'm saying it's right. Because guess what? Jesus did it for you. And so the gospel solution to arguing and arguments that cannot be satisfied is to say, brother, sister in Christ, I love you. We're disagreeing about this thing. I'm willing to, to suffer wrong so that we might have unity again. So I apologize for my part of this, and I want to be unified again as the body of Christ. So what's the motivation from this text? Preserve the unity of the body of Christ out of obedience to him as a proof of his working in you for the betterment of the church and for your witness to the lost. That was a long sentence, but I put a lot of commas in it, so I made it okay. This next next section that I want to look at after the grumbling um, coming to verse 15, um, and then going from 15 and to 16. Yeah, 15 and 16. This next section in your bulletin, you should see um, section number two is talking about a right standing with all. So there are there are three categories that we're going to look at. Describing, um, they're describing phrases that can be associated in three different contexts. So the first one is about being blameless. And this idea of being blameless applies to um, our our are standing with each other, okay? So blameless is repeated from chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul's already concerned about this idea of blamelessness amongst the church. Being blameless, so much as it depends on us, means that we live a life that is free of accusation, right? Now we know from the Bible, and you can probably think of a very prominent Old Testament character especially, who was wrongly accused of something. And if we're to follow this idea of blamelessness as saying, well, I need to make sure I'm not accused of anything. If you look at Joseph, for instance, and you say he's been accused of some terrible things that he wasn't guilty of. So it doesn't only mean this idea of making sure that there's no blame to be brought on you, but it's so much as it depends on you, so much as what is true, right? Because remember Joseph, in his decision, after the temptation that Potiphar's wife brought to him, he chose rather to be right with God than to be right in the eyes of other people. It's a hard decision to make. But this is what blamelessness is. So it, it, it doesn't only apply to whether we bear any blame, but also that we put no blame on others, that we do not live a life of, of blame. Okay, blamelessness means, yes, I, I, have, I am following Christ, and so as much as the Lord is working in me, I live a blameless life in myself, but also I do not look for places to find blame in others. This is the gospel ministry to the church. I've been disappointed and hurt by people in the church. You probably have too. I'm aware that I've done the same to other people. We ought to own up to our own sin and be free of it in Christ, but we also need to apply gospel truth to how we see others who have wronged us. Okay, And when Christ was wronged, what did he do? 
He said, I mean, for instance, I mean, there's so many answers to that question, but for instance, he said, on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He sought the forgiveness of those who were wronging him. Pretty amazing. Collectively, the church should be aiming to stand before the world with the right standing that they have before God. That is to say that we must be who we are in Christ, view each other in Christ, and shine in a world that doesn't know him. Next word that he uses. So first he says that you may be blameless and now innocent. And this idea of innocence regards our own personal perspective of ourselves. And the word conjures up the picture of an unmixed wine or of an unalloyed metal, simplicity and purity. So when you examine your life, do you see yourself as innocent? Kind of a weird question to ask yourself, perhaps. Do you spend time regularly as you read his word and pray to examine your heart? Do you agree with God about the desperate need you have for his forgiveness? Maybe you err on the side of harshness on yourself because of your sin. Maybe you, you spend so much time examining yourself and, and you, you really just come down really hard on yourself about things even like grumbling and, and even, even the things that you don't know. And maybe you spend a lot of time just brought too low before the Lord, or rather brought low too often and not walking in that forgiveness that he provides. But you might be on the other side of the spectrum too, where you say, well, no, I don't really spend any time examining my heart because I'm forgiven in Christ and everything's fine. But we do still have the temptation of sin to deal with. So we need to ask the Lord to correct our hearts in truth, to receive the love of God and the grace of Christ, and obey the correction of the Holy Spirit. And Communion Sunday is a great Sunday to do that, by the way. So he says that we ought to be blameless, innocent children of God. And so by this, Paul means for us to consider the way children imitate parents. Right? This is how children learn. They watch and then they do. Yeah. And parents, you see this in your kids very early on. I'm seeing it with Nora almost every day, especially in reading this passage and thinking about it. Um, if we go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, um, Paul mentions this to the church in Ephesus as well, that they ought to be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, so this concept is not exclusive to the Philippian church as well. But since we're beloved children of God, we ought to be imitators of Him. We ought to excuse me, consider how we talk, how we walk, what we do, what we think, all those things, we have to consider them as an opportunity to imitate our Heavenly Father. For me, it's in the way Nora says, hey, that's not very kind, because that's exactly how I say it. And then I hear her saying with the same inflection, like that, hey, she, when she says that, it gets under my skin. I'm like, what are you doing? She's imitating me. She's learning you know, how to speak, and she's learning her ideas of morality as well. Of course, she doesn't really understand how to apply that. She just applies it wherever she wants to. So if I say, no, you can't have another cookie, hey, that's not very kind. That's her understanding. And you know, we laugh because that's adorable, and the truth is, is that we don't fully understand everything that God understands, right? And so all we're doing, even as we worship, even you know, as I'm, I'm preaching a sermon and things, I think about the fact that I'm trying to, to do this in the power that God's granted me as a Christian, but I'm not going to do it perfectly. And we don't do anything in the Christian life perfectly, but it's okay because we are children of God. And that term doesn't ever wear out. It doesn't ever not apply to you if you're a follower of Christ. He says that we ought to be without blemish. 
children of God without blemish. And this is in relationship to us, our standing before the Lord. Being without blemish before the Lord requires a little bit of thought for us to understand. In Christ, I am justified or righteous in his presence. When we were converted, we were saved from the penalty of our sins. Right? We know the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So um, this concept of the progress of what God's doing in us is that at conversion, when we put our faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. As we walk with him and as he works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure, and we work out that salvation, he is saving us from the power of sin. So I cannot say as a Christian that I struggle in the same way with my sin as I did before I knew Christ. Does that make sense? There has to be a change. Because the truth is, is that Paul says in Romans, and I didn't get this passage up, it's just coming to my mind. He says that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. So having Holy Spirit doesn't have to mean that you do miraculous things and there's all this you know crazy things going on in your life, but rather if you belong to God, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, shaping your heart, making you more like Christ. It's a great reassurance. And so when we consider our sin, we consider the power of sin and temptations that we struggled with before we knew Christ, they are weakening as we walk more closely with him. Got it? So we are being saved from the power of sin. And then one day, either by the return of Christ or by our time to come to him, we will be saved entirely from the presence of sin. Both the sin that we are guilty of and commit and the sin that's done against us. It's a great hope. But that's what God is working in us. So this idea about being without blemish, it's not to say that Christians are called to live a perfect life, right? Because we can't. That's out of the realm of possibility. Well, do we have the means to live a perfect life? I don't know why I asked that question. I don't even really know the answer because it's tough. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If he wanted to make us perfect, could he do it? Sure, he could. He's not going to. It's not because he can't. It's because he doesn't want to because it's not the plan. Because the plan is for us, you know, why do we still struggle with sin? We struggle with sin so that we can constantly be reminded that Christ took care of that for us. That even in my life in Christ, when, I, when I'm tempted to grumble, for instance, and I realize that and I go, oh, grumbling. I understand now that, you know, looking back at that passage in Numbers, that, that that's showing that I don't believe in the Lord and that, that I'm, I'm arguing with him and that I'm throwing this at him, that he's done something wrong. Oh, that's gross. I don't want to do that anymore. Christ comes and speaks to us and says, your sins are forgiven. Even that one. When you think about the work of the cross was not just to do away with past sins before we believed, but it's to handle all the sins I have coming to me, right? That's amazing. That's such a great salvation that Christ has won for us, that he would say, not only am I going to save these people who by their sin have become enemies of me, I'm going to save these people who, after being saved, are still going to have some struggle with sin, and I'm going to love them through it. That is incredible, awesome, awesome love. I'm so thankful for that, you guys. That's so cool. Anyhow, <laughs> he sees us as in Christ. There's still sin that we commit that must be repented of, but when we repent, he doesn't, he doesn't receive us with his arms folded. He doesn't sit there and go, okay, this better be good. Your explanation, your repentance, your confession, you better make this really good. Because he doesn't see us like that. 
This mysterious verse in Hebrews says that he has forgotten our sins. He says, I will remember your sins no more. And if you want to know the passage, I'll look it up after the sermon. I'm sorry, I didn't have that prepared. But it is in there, I promise you. He says, I will remember their sins no more. As if when we repent and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I grumbled so much today. I'm so sorry that I let that turn into arguing and disputing with other people. It's as if he says, what grumbling are you talking about? Now, does God know that you grumble? Yeah, he knows everything. But the point is, is that he applies what he sees in Christ to you. And so when he looks at you, he does, we we really need to rest in that great truth, you guys. That will change your life immensely in Christ if you will accept the fact that God sees you in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So repentance is the answer to each of these three parts. In Christ, I confess and repent of whatever blame I deserve. In myself, I am innocent because of repentance of these things that would bring condemnation to my heart. John tells us that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and shows us the truth in Christ. And though sin still attacks me, I repent of it because he is now my father and my refuge. Because repentance is not just turning away from sin, it's turning to God. It's going to him when that sin lurks. Like he said to Cain, that sin is crouching at your door and you must overcome it. How do you overcome that sin? You run to God. You go to be with the one who can conquer that sin because we can't do it on our own. And guess what? When we think about repentance, my favorite verse about repentance is this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing, this is the key part here, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is not meant to be a thing that I do because I know that God's going to squash me and he hates my sin and he hates me and I'm an enemy, blah, blah. You know, I'm an enemy of God before I'm in Christ, but my, my walk of repentance is in response to God's kindness. God is so kind. And so when I think of my sin and when I think, oh, I just said, I just grumbled. We're just using grumbling today because that's in the passage, but you can apply whatever other sin you want. Oh, I just grumbled so much. Oh, it's so ugly. I hate that I do that. I'm going to be better. God, I'm going to be better. It's fine. It's fine. No, you go to him and you say, oh, but Christ was so kind. He was so kind to deal with that sin for me. And I want to repent because of his kindness. Next part here, he talks about what we're meant to do in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If a believer looks like the world, talks like the world, and acts like the rest of the world, what difference does his shining make in the darkness? We have to look different when we go to work tomorrow, right? This shining that Paul is talking about is one that causes a change in the world around us. Sounds a lot like Matthew 5.16, where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the purpose of shining in a dark generation, a dark, twisted, and crooked generation, is not to say, look how good we are. We all came to church today. You know, some of us, you know, decided to get up earlier. Some of us decided to do this. We brought our kids here. We did, you know, it's not to say, look at these good works that we did and admire us for it. But we need to make sure that the shining that we're doing has a purpose of pointing to God so that the people who see what's going on, can rejoice and glorify him, not us. Make sense? Awesome. Keep moving, Nick. There's a lot to do. Okay. The generation is 
Oh, sorry. I want one more quote. I wanted to throw in there. This uh, commentary, this Irishman uh, Matier that I've been reading. He said, "Light does what it does by being what it ought to be." It's as simple as that. Light does what it does by being what it ought to be. You turn the lights on, and it's not like the light bulbs are there doing this amazing thing. They they turn on and they're shining. They're illuminating the room. Right? It's just being what it ought to be. Light bringing into the place that it's there. And so are we. We are doing. Sorry, light does what it does by being what it ought to be. The generation is crooked now as it was when Paul wrote this. And even he is making an allusion to a previous generation in Deuteronomy 32.5. When God says they have dealt corruptly with him, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. So Paul is taking this passage in Deuteronomy that's referring to the people of Israel. He is now applying it to the world around us. Because what he's showing here is that the problem that Israel had is the same problem the rest of the world has. They're a crooked and twisted generation. They're blemished with sin because they've rejected who God is. They're people who've turned from the living God to idols. Those idols look different today than they did 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. But the result is the same. Idols promise joy that only God can truly give. If you want to know what an idol is, um, the best definition that I've heard is definitely got to be that, oh, I think it's Tim Keller. I think Tim Keller says it. Um, an idol is when we take a good thing and make it a God. Okay, When we take something that's good and we place it in God's seat. Now, certainly idols can be bad things, right? We know that true to be true. But most of the time, I think that our biggest struggle is the fact that we idolize things like our marriages, our friends, our families, our kids, our houses, or, you know, these good things that are in our lives, and we're making them ultimate things, and we're giving them the place of, that God should sit in our hearts and in our affections. The crooked and twisted generation we live in doesn't know God, and yet you do if you are in Christ. So what are you going to do about it? Remember here how important Paul sees the proclamation of the gospel. Back to Philippians 1.18. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul was talking about how there were some people, because of his imprisonment, there were some believers who were like, Paul's in prison. We're going to preach the gospel for him. We're going to do it. Hey, let's go. Come on. Let's preach in the gospel. And there were people that were highly motivated, and the, the Spirit of God just rushed and worked through them in amazing ways. And he said there were also people who looked at Paul, and they were like, Paul's in prison. I hate that, Paul. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make prison much worse for him. I'm going to start preaching the gospel so that I can bring some kind of greater torment on this guy. Because hopefully the jailer will find out that I'm preaching the message that Paul preached and they'll give him a harsher punishment because the message is spreading. And what Paul, what's Paul's response to this? It's so funny. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether there are people who are preaching the gospel because they hate me, or in truth, whether there are people who are preaching the gospel because they love Christ, Whichever way, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Pretty awesome. Evangelism doesn't amount simply to a moral example in hopes that someone will question why we are the way we are. You know, when you show up to work and you're not grumbling with everybody and people are like, you are weird. Why aren't you grumbling with us? You work in the same place. What's your problem? It's not as if to say like, well, I just hope you figure it out. You know, I hope you figure out that I'm a Christian and that's why you do it. No, of course not. We are meant to shine with the character of God that he's working in us and speak the word of truth that people may come to know Jesus. Last section. 
We're called to work out our salvation by faithful, joyful sacrifice and waiting for the day of Christ. So these last two verses, we'll read them again one last time. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The Greek phrase that Paul says when he says that we should be holding fast to the word could also be translated holding forth the word. Okay, so holding fast means you're clinging to it. Holding forth means that you're, you're putting it out in front of others to see. So truly, if we hold fast to the word, though, we will hold it forth. Because if we listen to the word and we see something like James 1.22, where he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, then we can't just simply say, you know, I'm definitely going to read my Bible every day and I'm definitely going to live in that so that um, I can hold fast to it. But if you are truly reading the word, if you are hearing it, and, and in the, the, you know, the good um, Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Shema, to, to listen, um, means not only to hear it, but also to base your actions on what you hear. If we're doing that, then we're not only going to be holding fast to the word, but we're going to be holding it forth to others as well. So illumination, the term we use theologically to say the way God reveals truth to his people through his word occurs when we see God's word is true, when we believe it, and when we realize we must carry out what it calls us to do. This charge is why it's so important for us to abide in his word daily. You know, there's no prescription in the word of God for how much you're supposed to read. Okay, so I'm not going to stand up in here and say, you know, tomorrow make sure you read 30 verses of the Old Testament and 12 verses of the New Testament. Okay? Bible reading plans are great. If you like those and if they're helpful for you, then that's awesome. If that helps you stay on a regimented schedule. But the words that the Bible uses to talk about reading his word are not so much about um, amounts of time, but they're about a qualitative difference. Okay, so it's more so about abiding in him, dwelling and meditating on the word of God. So it doesn't answer how many chapters or verses you should read, because that's not what it's about. You know, even if the word did give us a quantity, don't you think that if we knew from God's word, make sure you read 30 verses each day, wouldn't we just read 30 verses and then be like, okay, cool, I did it. Pat ourselves on the back and then move along. That's what I would do. I imagine that the language we see in scripture, again, about dwelling and meditating, or even what Job says that he values God's word as greater than his daily food, is to speak to a lifestyle of dependency on the word. A lifestyle of dependency on the word. So how much should you read in the Bible? The amount that is required for you to live a life that is dependent upon it. One person may say, I'm going to live dependent on the word. And they may read for two hours every morning at the crack of dawn. And some weirdos do that, that I don't know how they get up that early. (laughs) Um, But then another person might say, well, I'm going to read this much. And that's how I'm going to depend on the word. Well, how do we know if we're really depending on that amount of time, amount of time to be in the word. We know because it's making a difference. We know because we're not hearers of it, but also doers of it. Does that make sense? Trying to free you from thinking that you need to read a certain amount of chapters every week, but I'm also trying to call you to say, read in a way that shows that you depend upon the word of God, that your day looks different when you read it, as opposed to days when you do not read it. Make sense? Let the Lord work that into your life. If you sit and you say, I'm making a plan, I'm going to read um, chapter one of Philippians tomorrow. You get get done with chapter one, and you maybe sense that the Lord saying you to read chapter two. You should do it. You should just keep moving on. Holding fast to the word is what we're called to do here. 
Um, Next, offering right sacrifices to the Lord. Paul is concerned in verse 16 that if the Philippians fail to follow through with working out their salvation, he may have either labored in vain or ran in vain. Okay, so this first one about running in vain um, evokes this image of a runner in a race who commits a false start. You all know what a false start is in track? I did this in middle school. So frustrated. Because a false start is when you do something wrong at the beginning, you either start running too early or you cross the line or you do something wrong. You finish the race and you come back and the referee or whoever it is says, oh yeah, all of that didn't matter because you false started. And so you, you started falsely? I don't know. Okay, but I did that one time and I was running the 800 meters. So it's two laps around the track, half a mile. I felt like I was doing great. And then I came to the end and the guy said, hey, the guy next to you said that you um, you had a false start at the beginning of that. And of course, I wanted to argue about it. I didn't have a false start, but there was nothing I could do. They weren't going to count my time. That was the end of the story. And so Paul's saying, I, I want to see this in you because I don't want to imagine here that I've, I've run in vain or labored in vain. Now, um, what was Paul's job? He was an apostle, yes, but what was his, his day job? Anybody know? He made tents, right? He was a leather worker, right? So this idea um, of laboring in vain is is kind of evokes this idea of a weaver who makes this this huge project, works on it for a long time, only to find out when the buyer comes in that the buyer is unsatisfied, not going to pay for it, not going to take it, and therefore the labor has been done in vain. Some sad pictures here. And it's kind of an interesting thing for us to consider, though. Paul wants to motivate them, even with his investment in their faith. It's not to say that any one of us may add to the work of Christ, either in our own lives or in the lives of someone else. But it is a strong motivation if we consider those who invest in our spiritual lives, our spiritual growth, as a motivation to holding fast to the word. Right? That there are people that we know who have shared the gospel with us, who have discipled us, who have walked with us with Christ. And there are some days that I need to sit and I need to say, Lord, something wrong in my heart. I don't know why. I don't feel like following you. I don't feel like reading your word. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like having anything to do with you. Then I have to remember, but so-and-so is following you. So-and-so is walking with you. And it's not a competition, but it's a reminder to say, I'm going to, I'm going to run with a, a crew of brethren who love Christ and want to follow hard after him. I don't want to let them down, so to speak. Make sense? This last one, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So he uh, presents this concept of the drink offering from the Old Testament. An offering would be an animal that was sacrificed on the altar. A drink offering would be um, a pouring out of wine over top of that sacrifice, just as a sort of, you know, so to speak, an icing on the cake, kind of complete the sacrifice. And Paul says, look, even if I need to take my life and act as though it's a drink offering upon your sacrificial offering, which he actually alludes to this later on in 2 Timothy. He says, even now I am being poured out as a drink offering. He says, if I have to give my life even so that your sacrifice of faith would be complete, I'm in. Let's do it. You know, I don't want to have run in vain. I don't want to have labored in vain. I'm ready to pour out my whole life if it means that the sacrifice of your faith would be complete. Pretty awesome. What a place for us, for one who's wasting away in prison, to justify grumbling and disputing, right? But instead, he chooses rejoicing. Until the day of Christ, we're called to offer up the whole of our lives, our daily thoughts, our activities, conversations, as a living sacrifice to God. In light of what he has done for us, with joy, Paul rejoiced in it and called others to put aside grumbling and embrace rejoicing. 
don't know if you noticed that. The beginning of this passage has to do with grumbling. The end of it has to do with joy. What's the difference? The gospel. The good news of Christ. We can go now to the table of communion together, rejoicing in what Christ has done. Um, I listened to uh, Thabidi Anyabwile. Do you guys know who that is? He's a really, really great preacher. You should check him out sometime. Anyhow, he was talking about communion, and he, he quoted somebody else in saying that communion is not a funeral service for Jesus. Sometimes we act like that because we're talking about the death of Christ, right? Sometimes we, we, we go into uh, communion as though it is a, it's, a, it's a funeral service. It's just something that we just need to be sorrowful for. But the Christian life doesn't call us to just sorrow or just rejoicing, but actually a mixture of both. And so it's a great challenge for us to go to communion, rejoicing and knowing that Christ has died for us, but also sorrowful. Oh, my sin put me put him on the cross, but I am now seen by God in Christ. I'm going to give you some prayer points, um, and then we're going to um, bring the table up. And again, uh, so we're going to have some time of, refre- of reflection over these ideas, and then um, I'll pray for us to close that, and then um, I'll invite you to come to the front to receive the elements today. But let me go over these things, and while, while the table's getting prepared, um, I'll give you some time to pray and reflect on the word.